Hello, this is Dr. Pingxian Qian, the editor in chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, summarizing the November 2019 issue of the journal. You can find and subscribe to this podcast by searching for Heart Rhythm Podcast on iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please know that there is no space between heart and rhythm. In addition. Translations of this podcast in seven other languages are available each month at the HeartRhythmJournal.com website. The featured article is 2019 HR's expert consensus statement on evaluation, risk stratification, and the management of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy by Tobin et al. of the HR's writing group. An interview with the lead author, conducted by our online editor Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.hotrhythmjournal.com website. Arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is an arrhythmogenic disorder of the myocardium, not secondary to ischemic, hypertensive, or valvular heart diseases. This group of conditions includes arrhythmogenic right and left ventricular ventricular cardiomyopathy, cardiac amyloid and sarcoidosis, Charcot's disease, and left ventricular non-compaction. This expert consensus statement provides the clinicians with guidance on evaluation and management of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And includes clinically relevant information on genetics and disease mechanics. Next up is left atrial size and the total atrial empty infraction in atrial fibrillation progression by C. Wuster et al., University of Leipzig, Germany. The authors studied 211 patients undergoing first AF ablation. Low voltage area were determined using high-density maps. Left atrial empty infraction was determined by cardiac MR. They found an association between low voltage areas and persistent atrial fibrillation with a worse total atrial empty infraction. The right and left atrial empty infraction determined by cardiac MR might serve as a clinically useful biomarker to detect low-voltage areas and AF progression. Basilieri et al. from P. Cosma Hospital, Italy, wrote the following article titled Anatomy of the Caval Tricuspid Isthmus for Radiofrequency Ablation in Typical Atrial Flutter. They studied 337 consecutive patients, ungeographically determined caval tricuspid isthmus, or CTI morphology, was classified as either simple or complex due to pouch-like recesses. Acute procedure failure or major complications occurred in three cases, all with complex CTI anatomy. The authors conclude that CTI anatomical complexity can impact ablation parameters and outcome. Pre-procedural assessment of CTI anatomy 
might help to avoid potential difficulties and complications during the ablation procedure. The next paper is also about CTM morphology. This paper was by Kella et al. from Mayo Clinic and is titled Radio Frequency Ablation of the Cable Tricuspid Isthmus for Management of Atrial Flutter in Patients with Congenital Heart Disease After Tricuspid Valve Surgery, a single-center experience. Sixteen patients met the inclusion criteria. Twelve patients had Epstein's anomaly, 14 patients had a prosthetic tricuspid valve, and two patients had an annuloplasty ring. Acute success was achieved in all cases with no complications. Nine patients required ablation from the ventricular side of the valve to target atrial tissue rendered inaccessible as a result of tricuspid valve surgery. These procedures seem to be both safe and effective. Next up is a paper by Liang et al. from Shenyang, China, titled Psycholens Criteria for His Bundle Capture are Capable of Determining Pacing Types Misclassified by Output Criteria. The Psycholens Criteria state that if decreasing psycholens to a certain level results in QRS morphology changes, then non-selective His Bundle Pacing is present. Among the 192 patients with non-selective his bundle pacing, the shortest cycle length with which a stimulus can be conducted along the his bundle was at least 20 milliseconds longer than the shortest cycle length at which surrounding myocardium could conduct. In comparison with the output criteria, this cycle length criterion is less likely to misclassify non-selective his bundle pacing as right ventricular pacing. Borsma et al. from Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands wrote the following article titled Understanding Outcomes with the SICD in Primary Prevention Patients with Low EF Study. Abbreviation of the study is untouched. Clinical Characteristics and the Perioperative Results they included 1,116 patients with SICD implanted for primary prevention. All but four had a successful device implantation. There was a low perioperative complication rate and a high conversion efficacy of induced ventricular fibrillation, even in high-risk cohort with low LVEF and more comorbidities than previous SICD studies. This study confirms the implant efficacy and the safety of the contemporary version of the SISD device and its algorithms for detection and the treatment. The next article is by Padmenabang et al. from Mayo Clinic, titled Safety of Thoracic Magnetic Resonance Imaging for Patients with Pacemakers and Defibrillators. The authors reviewed 952 patients and 1,290 scans in patients with legacy or non-MRI conditional cardiac implantable electrical devices undergoing thoracic or brain MRI 
No difference was observed in the instance of adverse events or device parameters between the thoracic MRI group and the brain MRI group. This study shows that thoracic MRI is relatively safe in an institutional multidisciplinary program and that thoracic MRI does not represent greater risk than brain MRI for patients with legacy CIEDs. Takigawa et al. from the University of Bordeaux wrote the following article titled Insights from Atrial Surface Activation Throughout Atrial Tachycardia Cycle Length, a new mapping tool. The authors tested a new concept of atrial mapping by using a software feature that detects all electrogram deflections without trying to identify the local activation times. The program then generates a global activation histogram showing the atrial surface activation throughout the atrial tachycardia cycle lens. The authors found that the global activation histogram shows focal versus reentrant mechanisms at first glance. They showed that a decrease in activated areas has 100% sensitivity for isthmus identification. This new mapping method may significantly improve the operator's ability to rapidly identify potential ablation targets. Takigawa et al. from the University of Bordeaux also contributed to the next article titled Are Wall Thickness Channels Defined by Computed Tomography Predictive of Isthmuses of Post-Infarction Ventricular Tachycardia? This study sought to determine whether three-dimensional reconstructed CT channels correlate with electrophysiological isthmuses during ventricular tachycardia. A total of 41 CT channels were identified in 9 patients during electroanatomical mapping of VT. They found that the VT isthmuses were always found in CT channels, and half of the CT channels hosted VT isthmuses. Longer and thinner but greater than 1 mm thick CT channels were significantly associated with VT isthmuses. This work suggests that three-dimensional CT reconstruction is useful in predicting ablation, ablation targets in VT. A larger series of patients is needed to confirm this observation. The next article is titled Characterization of Skin Sympathetic Nerve Activity in Patients with Cardiomyopathy and Ventricular Tachycardia by Zan Erlo from Mayo Clinic. The authors recorded skin sympathetic nerve activity from 65 patients with severe cardiomyopathy. They found that patients with recent sustained ventricular arrhythmia episodes had higher average skin sympathetic nerve activity than patients without ventricular arrhythmia. General anesthesia suppressed both the nerve activity and the arrhythmia. These data suggest that the average skin sympathetic nerve activity at baseline is an independent predictor of ventricular arrhythmia recurrence. Daniels et al. Vanderbilt University wrote the following article titled SCN5A variant R222Q 
generated abnormal changes in cardiac sodium current and action potentials in murine myocytes and Purkinje cells. Carriers of the mutation R222Q display very frequent ectopy and dilated cardiomyopathy. The authors generated mice carrying humanized wild-type and mutant SCM5A channels. They found in heterozygous mutant cardiomyocytes an outward dating pool current, which shortens the action potential. Low extracellular potassium increased this pool current and was arrhythmogenic in vitro and ex vivo. Frequent ectopic activity might contribute to the development of dilated cardiomyopathy in patients with the R222Q mutation. Next up is a patient-independent human IPSC model, a new tool for rapid determination of genetic variant pathogenicity of long QT syndrome by Chavari et al. from Vanderbilt University. The CACNA1C gene encodes the alpha-1C subunit of the voltage-gated L-type calcium channel. The authors introduced the N639T variant of this gene into a previously established human IPSC from an untreated, unrelated healthy volunteer to generate a patient-independent human IPSC model. Patch clamp studies revealed that the N639T variant prolonged the ventricular action potential by slowing voltage-dependent inactivation of the calcium current. These new methods may allow rapid screening for the pathogenicity of variants of unknown significance. Takayama et al. from Shiga University, Japan, wrote the next article titled A De Novo Gain-of-Function KCND3 Mutation in Early Repolarization Syndrome. The gene KCND3 encodes KV4.3, an alpha subunit of the ITO channel. A novel De Novo KCND3 heterozygous mutation, glycine-306-alanine, was found in a proband with early repolarization syndrome and a VF storm. Intravenous isoproterenol and subsequent administration of quinidine were effective in preventing VF recurrence and reduced J-point elevation. The mutant KV4.3 showed significantly increased current densities, slow inactivation, and slow recovery from inactivation compared to wild type. The authors conclude that a novel KCND3 heterozygous mutation was found to be associated with early repolarization syndrome. The pathogenesis can be explained by the increased ITO. Genetic screening of KCND3 could be useful for understanding the pathogenesis and selecting effective treatment. The next article is an experimental study by Homan et al. from Mayo Clinic titled Left Ventricular Function After Non-Invasive Cardiac Ablation Using Proton Beam Therapy in a Porcine Model. 
Twenty domestic swine underwent proton beam treatment of LB sites in a dose-finding design and were followed for up to 40 weeks by cardiac magnetic resonance imaging at four-week intervals. Significant LVEF decline occurred with at least 20 gray of radiation and was dose-dependent. The changes are seen around three months after treatment. This study shows that precise target definition and focused energy delivery are paramount in cast-free ablation of ventricular tachyarrhythmia via targeted radiation. Wu et al. from UCLA wrote the next article titled Enhancement of Beta-Catenin T-cell factor 4 signaling causes susceptibility to cardiac arrhythmia by suppressing NAV 1.5 expression in mice. Beta-catenin T-cell factor 4, or TCF4, signaling is enhanced in ischemic heart diseases. He also studied a mouse model with enhanced beta-catenin TCF4 signaling. These mice had prolonged QRS complexes and increased susceptibility to ventricular tachycardia. The mechanism relates to the suppression of NAV 1.5 expression and the sodium channel activity. These findings may be important in understanding the arrhythmogenic mechanisms of ischemic heart disease. Next up is why low-voltage shock impedance measurements fail to reliably detect insulation breaches in transvenous defibrillation leads by Swirlo et al. from the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. ICDs use low-voltage measures of shock impedance to monitor integrity of leads. The authors simulated in-pocket insulation breaches between the ICD generator and the cables to the distal coil in 10 leads from two different manufacturers. They found that low-voltage shock impedance is insensitive to insulation breaches that may cause life-threatening electrically shorted shocks. Strong shocks are required to detect insulation breaches reliably. The authors propose that an improved diagnostic tool is required to detect insulation breaches of high-voltage conductors. The next article is a contemporary review titled Mastering the Art of Epicardial Access in Cardiac Electrophysiology by Romero et al. from Montefiore Medical Center in New York. Over the past years, multiple technological advances have led to significant improvements in the safety of epicardial access. The authors summarize these advances in this article. This issue's HR's 40th anniversary viewpoint was written by Dr. Eric Pristowski of the St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. It is titled Research and Teaching, a View from the University and Private Practice. Dr. Pristowski provides insightful advice to younger generations of future leaders on how to approach a career in both the university and the private practice settings. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peng Xian Chen.